After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And guys, oh guys, I have one heck of a treat in the form of a conversation with Ted Kotcheff about his film, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Oh, guys, if you haven't seen this movie yet, you need to. It is so good. It was recently declared a Cannes classic. It's one of Richard Dreyfuss's first films and definitely, I would say, his best role. Uh, he's so electric in it. It's got an incredible supporting cast. It is so worth your time. You can rent it on iTunes. Um, I think it's on streaming services in the States. Do not miss it. Now, the name Ted Kotcheff might not ring bells for you, but you have definitely seen his movies. Uh, Weekend at Bernie's is uh, one of his. Fun with Dick and Jane, the original one. The first Rambo is his. That's Rambo First Blood, and it would not have been the same without him and his collaboration with uh, Sylvester Stallone. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the chat. But really, Duddy Kravitz is, I think, one of his most beautiful, most signature, and most personal pieces. Uh, it's based on his best friend, Mordecai Richler's novel of the same title. And we're going to talk a little bit about him and his relationship to Mordecai in this chat as well. Big thank you so much to Brock and Rachel over at the U of T Media Commons. This would not have happened without them, as well as to Ted's wife for helping me set this up. Thank you very much to all you guys. If you guys have anyone you want me to talk to that you think would be great on the show, please feel free to reach out. You can reach us at RCM Pod on Twitter, or you can reach us on the website, rcmpodcast.com. And we also want to hear what you think of the show, so please reach out anytime. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, subscribe, all the fun stuff. So without further ado, here's my chat with Ted Kotcheff. I, I, I finished my volume four of my poetry and I, I rewrote a film I've always wanted to make about how King Boris saved all the Jews in Bulgaria during World War II. You know, I was actually just reading an interview where you were talking about that and I actually wanted to know where you were in the process for that project because it sounds incredible. Well, it's, it's, I finished the script and it's, and everybody likes the script, but um but I'm having the difficulties finding the financing, as always. Totally fair. <laughs> that seems to be most of your career, right? It's like, I'm going to make this thing and we're going to see what happens. That's right. Well, look, look at the price of Diddy Kravitz, for goodness sake. Exactly, exactly. It's finally rediscovered. Can just screened it a couple of years ago. Uh, Richard Dreyfus was finally like, yes, this is my best role. <laughs> you know, it took 15 years. <laughs> Do you feel like your whole career has kind of been doing that? You, it's been so all over the place. I mean, you've been to so many different countries. You've worked so many different places. You've been a writer. You're a poet. You're a filmmaker. You've done tons of stuff. I love I, I love working in various countries and making films. But, of course, I, I, I can always – I'll never forget that I'm a Canadian. And um, and also, you know, when Mordecai Britzler and I were living in – we were we shared an apartment. An apartment. It was a dump. <laughs> decor by Charles Dickens <laughs> an apartment in um, in London and uh, he had just started writing Dodie Kravitz it took him two years to write the book and then the last day he was, he was typing the last the last page of the book he pulled the last page out of his, out of the typewriter turned to me and says Kachev here it is the whole book read it <laughs> Right now, right now, I'm going to watch you do it. So I sat down right then, 
and I read in one sitting all 350 pages. Wow. And as I got up, I said to him, Mordecai, not only is this the best Canadian novel ever written, but one day I'm going to go back to Canada and make a film out of it. And we both laughed. <laughs> we both laughed at the absurdity of the idea because, of course, there was no Canadian film industry whatsoever at, at that time. So for year and years, I struggled to find someone that would be interested in financing a film based on the premise of Dirty Kravitz. From the day that I read the novel in that dingy apartment, whenever I would meet a film producer, I pressed a copy of the book firmly into his hands, telling him with absolute true conviction what a fantastic movie this, this book would make. But after a decade of trying, I still don't have a sing I didn't have a single taker. And, and there were strange ones, uh, Becky, like Sam Arkoff. I did a film for him and uh, AIP, and he liked me very much. So I gave him a copy of the book to read. And he responded immediately. He said, Ted, I love this book. He said with all the gusto of a true Hollywood producer. <laughs> and I want to produce it. And I said, oh, thank my lucky God. I can't, I can't believe it. I sighed with a sigh of relief. I was unbelievably elated. Then he said, but, and you know, um, I've always hated butts. <laughs> <laughs> I've hated butts my entire creative career. Butts never bode well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said to me, but there's one thing, but, but there's one thing. I don't want Duddy to be Jewish. I want him to be Greek. Of course. Greek? <laughs> but the, I mean, the story is about this Jewish kid in a small Jewish enclave surrounded by a mammoth Catholic Christian metropolis. I says, Mordecai had an incredible childhood. French Canadian kids would dance around Mordecai and say, you kill Jesus Christ. You kill Jesus Christ. That's. That, that, that's that's what Duddy faces and has to triumph over. This, that, that, this is what shaped him. That, that's the point of the film. It's what makes him sympathetic. And the he universality to, of it is that he's an outsider looking for a place on the inside and doing whatever he can to get it. That's right. And he has to use his French-Canadian girlfriend to buy the properties he's chasing because the, the French-Canadians farmers won't sell their land to a Jew. Of course. I, I, wouldn't, I said, look, I, I can't violate the integrity of my best friend's masterpiece. I watched him slave over it for two years. <laughs> and the story was so close to him, and now to me, that there wasn't even a small chance I would make Duddy a Greek. Time flew by, and, and, and then nothing. And finally, of course, the natives finally came through for Duddy Kravitz. The Canadian natives, I mean. Finally, yes, we were, we were able to embrace our own every now and then, and then we promptly abandoned you when you wanted to make the next one, and you had to go to the U.S. Well, I know, Becky, but listen, in 1967, the Canadian government set up a funding organization called the Canadian Film Development Corporation. You know that. Which is now Telefilm, yeah. CFD was run by a lovely man named Michael Spencer, and I sent him the novel and the script, and he loved it and said, yes, I'll, I'll finance this. And I got another Canadian uh, to put up the other half of the money. We were ready to go, and I made it. And I'm so glad you did, because it's fantastic. and It's an incredible Canadian touchstone. Going back to the guy who wanted him to be Greek and said it in Pittsburgh, which is insane. Why do you think people do that? Like, what goes through people's minds when they want to make these key changes to a story to make it more accessible or more marketable? And obviously with this, you didn't want to betray Mordecai, but I'm sure you've had to make later compromises how did you know when to push back and why do people do that? They thought that making this story about a Canadian Jewish kid on the make, a schemer, would be of no interest outside of Canada. And um, that's why. I mean, all these decisions, Becky, are all about money, financing, you know. If people are going to put up, after all, 
I mean, my film, of course, but Dudley Carpenter was made for a very small amount of money, seven hundred and fifty thousand mm. dollars. Think about it: a period film, period cars, period costumes, period hair, everything period. And a huge cast, like these are a lot of people. And a large cast and wonderful, wonderful actors. So it's a lot. It's always a lot of money, you know. They want to get make sure that they're doing something that will ensure that they get their money back. And that's that's always the. That's always the problem and always the decision that the financiers have to make. Will this film make money, my, my money back? With government funding, so you got, uh, you got money from the CFTC at that time. Do you feel like that gives filmmakers a little bit more breathing space and a little bit more room to play? Of course, because if you get half the money, it's, it's very easy to get the other half. It's easy, not, not easy, but easier mm. to get half of the money. And because of that, and the, and the CFTC is right, they, they, they only give you half the budget. You have to get the other half from private sources. But sure, yeah, it helps the film helps the film industry tremendously. I mean, if, if I had that in all my my other films, I'd be I've made I've made ten more films than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and they all would have been great. That's right. <laughs> what was it like filming in Montreal at this time? How did you turn old Montreal into old Montreal? That was I, I, it's funny you should say that. I in order to have this conversation, I screened Dirty Kravitz yesterday. Have a look at it, and I couldn't believe the, the period. Well, the, the streets, the street scenes and the, the Jewish quarter, the whole Jewish quarter and the people selling things in the streets. And, and uh, I think that uh, I think, well, I was very lucky. With, uh, first of all, you find locations of things that were like uh, of buildings that were exactly like they were in the 20s. <laughs> but but it was always it's always a problem. And I, I don't know how I, I think back. I said, my God, how did I do this for so little money? <laughs> But I did. I found it and created it. Interiors, of course, are easier. But it's the, always it's, it's the exteriors which are very difficult to find from the past. I mean, you're shooting on trains. You're all over the place. It's not like, you know, it's a single apartment drama. No, it sure, sure isn't. <laughs> <laughs> What's the scene that you most remember trying to figure out how it was going to work? Like, what was your most innovative solution? Oh, dear. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> how is this movie going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> there was not, not one of them was an easy one. I think, but oh, uh, to me, the main problem was to get someone who was um, a star, an actor who could play. That was the biggest, to me, the biggest hurdle I had to jump is the, the casting. I auditioned everybody in Canada, practically every actor, and I never, and I never felt there was anybody who was a dead right for the part, and b who could carry this film. It's very difficult film, and uh, too, and and found after all after all this time, I had all the money ready to go. It was two weeks before the start of shooting. I still hadn't I hadn't found a Duddy Kravitz. He's just a cadidal character, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> I had just I just finished doing. We believe this a western in Israel with Gregory Peck. Yes, and you had Jack Warden in that too. Yes, right. I had Jack Warden. That's right. Uh, I loved, and the casting director was a big Hollywood, big Hollywood casting director, Lynn Stallmaster. He, he he ultimately ended up casting 300 Hollywood films. I mean, he he was the great god of casting, and and we had gotten very we got along very well when I made made uh, Billy Two Hats this, and uh, so I, I phoned him up and said, "Listen, Lynn, I need your help. I'm desperate. Like I say, I'm I'm middle. I've got a film. I got to start shooting in two weeks. I, I, I haven't got the I haven't got the star to carry it or the actor to play the part." He said, "Well, send me the script." I said, "Well, I got one more, one more thing I want to tell you. I have no money." I'm make, making this picture for $750,000. I've got the money to pay you. He said, Ted, you're going to be a ma major director in your life. 
you're going to be using me and I'm going to get that money back in the future sometime. Don't worry about it. <laughs> send me the script right away. So I sent it to him. I, I sent him the script. He got it. He wrote me, he phoned me back the next day. He said, Ted, this is one of the best scripts I've read in five years. This is a great script. And he said, and as a kid, as, and there's a young actor who was born to play it. You won't have heard of him. I said, well, who is it? He said, well, it's an actor called Richard Dreyfus." I said, you're right. I've never heard of him. Um, can I say something he's done? I, mean, I forgot what he was shooting at the time. But he had done a film. It was a gangster film, I think. I forget the name. But the, so I said, well, can I, can I see this film that he's, just, that he's done? He said, no, no, no. He, he overacts in it. I said, he overacts in it. Lynn, you're, you're, you're recommending an actor for the part that overacts? He said, Denny Kravitz. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Ted, I'm telling you, I'm going to bring in the, best, the 10 best young actors in Hollywood, but I'll bet you, you ended up, you ended up with Richard Dreyfuss. I said, okay, I'll come down. So I flew down to Hollywood and uh, he brought in young actor. But you know, I, I'd lived with this character for 15 years. After I read, I read the book, it was, this is 15 years later now. <laughs> and I'd lived with this character for 15 years. And I always saw him like myself, I guess, a dark, dark eyed, dark haired slat. In walks in a blonde, Blue-eyed person. I said, "This guy doesn't look like. Jew. Doesn't even look like a Jew." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! What am I going to do? That Peggy starts crazy. I said, "Okay, you can you can read uh, read the scene, Richard." He read it, and of course, as soon as as soon as Richard opened his mouth, it was electric. He had Duddy's manic energy. You understood him. You felt for him. You saw his needs. He grabbed you by the lapels and demanded your attention, your feelings, your sympathy. It was an extraordinary reading. And Lynn, one of the great things about Lynn Stallmaster as casting director, and I did many films with him, was if there was two actors who were equal in the audition, in, in, in talent, and in the audition, he would say, uh, take, take B. The camera will magnify and enhance his performance, and the others won't. And that's what he said about Richard. He said, as brilliant as his readings is now Ted, it will reach even greater heights in front of the camera, and his performance will be more complex and grow in an unexpected direction. Well, how right he was. It really is the performance of a lifetime, and you see his later work, and it's it's fun and it's good because he's very fun and good, but there's something in the Duty Kravitz character where he's he's so intense and so driven and perhaps it's because he's still really young and hungry. I mean, he's not working with Spielberg at that point. He hasn't hit the Hollywood Heights that no. you feel his need to get there and it really filters through the whole performance. He was running he was at the time he was playing a leading role in the film uh, American Graffiti. Yes. That's right, you know. And uh, but he and, but in the Dillinger film that was the film the gangster film in the Dillinger film he played Babyface Nelson that was the one that Lynn said that uh, don't watch it because he overacts. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had to meet remake the Dillinger film a few times, so obviously they didn't get it right. <laughs> so that's uh, the other the other of course important piece of casting. And I was very lucky was Micheline Langton. Oh, she's unbelievable to play his girlfriend Yvette, and she what a performance from her. Yeah, and. Um, the, um, the, what happened was Mordecai and I were in, living in the south of France at the same time. And during the Cannes Film Festival, Mordecai said it was a French-Canadian film at the festival and suggested we could see it. 
film was, uh, oh yeah, Jill Carl's Le Verniture de Bernadette. Mm-hmm. Bernadette was played by an actress unknown to me, Micheline Langteau. Halfway through the film, I leaned over to Mordecai and I said in a whisper, there's, there's Duddy's girlfriend, Yvette. And little did I know, of course, she would end up being my girlfriend as well. We made a long love affair for the last about five years. Well, she's just, she's so powerful and so magnetic. And it's, you believe simultaneously that she's falling for, you know, what the line he's selling her, that she really does love him, but that she has the power to make these negotiations and really help him up to the next level. So it's, yeah. a, it's a very complex performance. A, a, a number of other actresses would have played her like a pushover, and she's not a pushover. Well, and it was, I, 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 I was absolutely knocked out by her performance. I mean, the whole supporting cast really helps make Duddy what he is, because you don't get people to swindle if there aren't people to hustle and swindle. And I mean, you've got Randy Quaid in this. We already talked about Jack Warden, Micheline, like this supporting cast is bananas good and just keeps increasing. How did you find all these other people? You talked a bit about Micheline, but how did Randy come on, come into this? He was fresh off Paper Moon. Yes, I know. I don't know. I think I well, I see a lot of films, uh, Becky. And I think I, I see. I, I think I'd seen him in something. And uh, and of course, listen, I had this great casting director. He's just the best. You know, he was always making good suggestions all the time. I'd say. For that part, and he said, he said, he said, he was the one who suggested. He said, take a look at that this, this film that he's in. So that's, I mean, that all the casting, were, as I say, is a tribute to this incredible talent of this incredible casting director, Lynn Stolmester. I love this especially because there's two different ways you can watch it. I mean, you can root for him as the underdog, and he's sticking it to all the rich phonies, and you're cheering when he gets his goal. But you can also cringe and just be heartbroken as you're watching this guy who has all this talent and all this drive and all this potential, and he's cutting corners left and right, and he's racing his way to the ethical bottom. And he's just surrounded by all these different cautionary tales of what he could become, including, you know, the boy Wonder, who's uh, both bad and good how has the story changed for you in your point of view oh that's, that's a, well I, 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 I gotta tell you you know usually I, I Becky when people ask me to talk you ask me to talk about Dudley Kravitz and I have I have a faint memories of it you know I'm not faint memory I have a lot of memories of the making of it and things but the final film when I saw the I screwed, when I screened it yesterday I was absolutely knocked out I said oh my god gotcha you're a brilliant director mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean the staging of it, and the and the, ca- the depiction of the characters, because I that that's to me that uh, to, that to me Becky that's the most important thing in filmmaking, is getting great performances. You know I, I studied acting not not to be a, an actor, but how to how how to get great performances out of actors and getting the things the things to do. I was absolutely knocked out by all the performances all over. Jack Warden was so funny. <laughs> there was some great things in it. But, the, but, but Richard Dreyfuss and, and Micheline Langto, oh my God, did I ever get, I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the way you shoot it, like the entire time, you feel like you're seeing things you shouldn't be seeing. Like you feel like you're looking inside a window at people's lives. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Becky, for that comment. That's very interesting. And I mean, that's all the best cinema is you, you should feel a little awkward watching it because you're like, oh, this is slightly voyeuristic. And the best film is voyeuristic. I mean, Hitchcock knew that. <laughs> Who did? Who told you that? <laughs> Hitchcock, he knew that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In another interview I, I read, you said that the through line of your incredibly brilliant and collected career, has been these characters who don't know themselves. Why do you think that is? What drew you to that? Because I'm a person who doesn't know himself. That's, 
<laughs> I often think, well, what, what's, what motivated me to do that? Why, why, why did I say that? That's not me. What, where's that? Who's that person that spoke with in this situation? He spoke it in a, light, in a way that I never speak. I'm always, and I don't know myself, and I'm, I'm most, therefore I'm very attracted. You're right, Becky. I'm very attracted by films I've made. The heroes of my films don't know themselves, and they discover themselves. <laughs> I think, but that's—I think that's true for many human, a lot of human beings. You don't know what, what what is motivating you, what's driving you, what's making you behave this way, what made you say that, and that does the things to me that I, I find very fascinating. Because you're known for doing so many different genres, is you're able to explore that question, explore that that idea through something like Wake and Fright, where it's someone who's, you know, learning something terrible about himself, or um, someone like in Weekend at Bernie's, where they're both like, oh, do we have this in us to, like, perpetrate this huge heist? <laughs> yes, I, I, that's, that's my, my, my speciality. I think that's, I think the audience find that very interesting in a character. He doesn't know himself, and he just, in the, in the process, in the, in, in, the, in the action of the film, he comes to realize who he is and why he's been doing what he's doing. So you are also known as a big collaboration guy. I mean, there's all these stories of you collaborating with Stallone to make Rambo what it is and First Blood what it is. Um, were there any like major collaborations with Duddy that you did to kind of make it even better? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, Mordecai. Of course. <laughs> I mean, Mordecai was my best friend, and and um, and we he wrote he wrote the novel in two years. It was very interesting about Mordecai. Mordecai. When we, we met him, he'd been uh, living in Europe for for four novels. He'd written the first four novels abroad and not in Canada. But they were set in Canada, but he wrote them. And then he, one day he came to me and he said, Ted, when we were sharing an apartment, he said, I gotta get I gotta go, I gotta get back to Canada. And I said, What's the problem? What guy says, Listen, he said, you know, authors have their authorial turf. And he, he mentioned uh, an American novelist, and, and he said, uh, he's, he, he's, this is where, this is his authorial turf. You're up to Matafa County. And I said, and, I, and my authorial turf is Montreal, Canada, Murphy, uh, and Canada, Montreal, and the Jewish, St. Urban Court, the Jewish Quarter on St. Urban Street. That is my, and if I don't get back to it soon, I'm going to, my, my roots are there. They're going to dry up because they're not, so he was, he was really upset. And I said, and, and of course, he really meant it. He felt it very deeply that he had to go back to Canada or otherwise he was not going to be able to write any more novels. And of course, he was married to uh, a very beautiful woman. Isn't it funny? When I saw, I saw the film yesterday, uh, when I saw um, Joshua's in and out, I, I saw that as well. There's a scene where uh, James Woods marries the, the, his, this beautiful woman, <laughs> Mrs. Lazure, and uh, Gabrielle Lazure. And uh, she's very pregnant. She's got a tremendously large stomach at the wedding ceremony. That was, that, that's, uh, that novel, uh, Joshua, that was one of the most autobiographical novels of all that he, he wrote. And that scene, it's, it, I, it happened in real life. When Mordecai and and he, he left finally left. They left London against and and um, she didn't want to to go to uh, back because she loved London. She loved the the the, the opera, the L A. You know, the theater life there was just so rich. And he felt it was a bit that Montreal was a bit kind of uh, off the beaten track, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and anyway. She went back and she got pregnant 
And he's, and so Mordecai phoned me from London. He said, Ted, you gotta come. We want you to be best man. I said, about in the middle of shooting, Mordecai. I'm, uh, he says, what, what, what's the urgency? Can you wait? Can we wait? I can't. My, and my wife is pregnant. <laughs> She's getting bigger and bigger. I don't want my son to born a bastard, Ted. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, look, I'll, I'll let me shoot. I, I'll, I'll speed up the shooting at the next day. And I'll, soon, the last shot, I'm going to jump. I'll jump on a plane and come over. And he kept saying, oh, Ted, please. She's just eighth month now. Oh, my God, it's the ninth month, Ted. It's not <laughs> and finally, I did arrive in Montreal. And you can read my book about the whole marriage ceremony. It was very funny. Anyway, I arrived there, and I was the, I, I was the best man. And, um, and she was enormously pregnant. In fact, she, got, she gave birth the day after we, we had the wedding ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> just in time. Just in time, I arrived there. And <laughs> but anyway, Mordecai, Mordecai, and and I got to tell you as well, Becky, that I felt, I felt, and Mordecai did, as I said, felt that his roots, he had to go back or he couldn't write any more novels. He didn't go back to where he felt was his authorial turf. But I felt that I, well, I said, I'm working in England. What do I know about English life? I don't know anything. And you're going to make a film about things you got to know the fine details, you know? And I said, I, I've got to get, and I felt the same thing with Mordecai. When Mordecai and I talked about it, I said, I've got to go back, Mordecai. i got to go back and work. In, I'll make, I'm sure I'm going to make my best films in Canada. Um, and that was Anthony Kravitz. Now, of course, what happened was, I made my first Canadian feature film, The Apprenticeship of Judy Kravitz. And lo and behold, it wins the Golden Bear for best film in the prestigious Berlin Film Festival, becoming the first Canadian film to win an international prize. And then it won a gold medal at the Atlanta Film Festival. I felt this proved clearly to me that my best film work would be in Canada. And, uh, and on top of all these awards, the film's investors earned their money back in the first two weeks of the film's ex exhibition in Canada and went on to make huge profits for them. I thought I would be all set in Canada making films there for the rest of my life, for it achieved the ultimate desideratum for a film director, a fine film artistically that makes a great deal of money. I thought that Canadian investors would be falling over themselves and giving me money for any film I wanted to make from here on in. So, and to capitalize on this momentum, Mordecai and I quickly finished an adaptation of another one of his novels, St. Urban Horseman. It was a great script, and I set out with high hopes of getting it quickly financed. But could I get the money for its production in Canada? No. I spent the best part of a year going everywhere with my begging hat outstretched without an excess. Please, sir, can I have a million dollars? <laughs> I don't know if that cautious Scott syndrome prevailing in the Canadian makeup is the culprit, but Canadians seem to lack that entrepreneurial and buccaneering spirit possessed by Americans in financial and investment matters. That's so fascinating to me because that's something we talk a lot, a lot about in the podcast and something I ask all of my guests is what does Canada need more of to be able to support its artists to make sure that we're making more stuff. And some people have talked about that we are really good at picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and like getting it done. But I feel like we're good at getting it done when someone tells us what to do as opposed to taking the risk. Like if everything in the infrastructure is already in place that you have to do it as opposed to being like, well, you mean we have to go outside the shelter we just built for the winter? <laughs> Yes, that's absolutely right. That's very, very perspicacious, Becky. <laughs> so, 
at the time, my, my dreams of making a second, another film in Canada were shattered. I got really depressed and I was flat broke. I just divorced my wife of 11 years, Sylvia Kay, and, and she remained in England with our three children. Daddy Gravitz had been made for a very small amount of money. Um, so my fee was a pr pr proportionately small. With two households to support three British children in private schools in England, I became desperate. A year flew by with absolutely no income. Oh boy. And in all that time, I couldn't raise a penny for St. Urban's, Urban's Horseman. And I mean a penny, not one penny. And at that moment, two Hollywood producers who had seen uh, uh, Diddy Kravitz um, offered me a social comedy. And, I, and they sent a script to me and offered me the money. I love the script entitled Fun with Dick and Jane. So Hollywood it was. This was not how my, my life story was to play out. It was supposed to play out in Canada. <laughs> As I think a lot of Canadians kind of hope. And then you realize that we don't have the population or we don't have the money or we don't have the entrepreneurial spirit to really just keep the momentum going. There's very few filmmakers that have been able to continue here. That's right, Becky. It's been very difficult for them. I know, I know several of them, but it's very difficult. Well, even notoriously, I mean, Bruce McDonald, I think, is one of our finest filmmakers, and he had yep. to enter a contest for the general populace to get funding for one of his films. And it's like, if Bruce McDonald can't get money, I think what, ch what <laughs> chance do any of us have? Yeah, I know. What, what do you have to do to get the money? <laughs> exactly. We all have to be duty. That's how this works. <laughs> Well, you talked a bit about Joshua Then and Now, which is also about a hustler, and it's about someone who's who's looking back on his life. But I really do see it as a companion piece for Duddy, right? Like you're you're seeing right. two people who are very similar. Duddy, unfortunately, he's lazy in a in a weird way. Like he cuts corners to get to where he needs to get to, whereas Joshua certainly does not. Joshua sees his path, and he he's like swishes his way all the way up. Why do you think they're they were written by the same person in two different kind of ways? Like what what way did Mordecai sort of relate to Duddy versus Joshua? Well, I think he's closer to the character of Joshua. I see I see so much of Mordecai in the depiction of of uh, Joshua. I think Duddy. Duddy was something he'd seen it in the streets of St. Urban's where he lived. You know, I think he'd seen characters like that. But, but, but that's why the two different people, I think. As a, he's much, he's, Mordecai was much closer to Joshua. First of all, he, he, Joshua was a writer like him. Remember, he's, in, he's a novelist. And you know, that whole marriage to Gabrielle Lazure was like his marriage to his wife. Mm -hmm. And the, the ethical code is fascinating as well, because both of them have very specific ethical codes. Yeah, that's right. And then, um, so generally, well, those those were the two. But you know, I always felt I felt closer closer to be oddly enough to to, to Duddy, because hmm. I grew up in the same kind of uh, same kind of way. <laughs> Duddy has been announced as a can classic, and it is a classic. Why do you think it endures? What makes a movie a classic? Oh boy, you got me. <laughs> well, I was first of all, I could say I was so thrilled. I mean, the highest accolade a film can receive is to be declared a Cannes classic by the most famous film festival in the world. You know, they declare your film a classic. Um, you, you've finally achieved achieved it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you you probably would be a better judge of that. Becky than me, because I created it. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> and uh, one, one can't be totally self-aware, but what, what the qualities that come out of it. I just think he's just a, I guess, 
he's very ambivalent, dude, isn't he? In many ways, he does. He, he's a schemer. He's a really a cunning schemer. But at the same time, you feel for him to what he's trying to do to make make himself. Um, make himself somebody. And I think we can all relate to that. It's like, no matter where you come from, we all have our dreams and ambitions that we want to we wanna push forward into. And like I said, there's two very different ways to, to kind of feel about him. And something I really love about this movie and I love about the book is that he wins and loses all at the same time at the very end. And to pull off that trick to watch someone achieve their goal while still lose everything that gives them any human connection is just magic. It's very moving at the end when she says it ever. Daddy, I never want to see you again, ever. Yeah. That's a very, it was a deep, deeply moving moment. Well, and the, what he's done, that he's destroyed everyone and everything, but he has his land. Yep. <laughs> it's just, it's so, like, it, it irks you just to think about it, but that's what makes it so powerful, and I think that's what makes it a classic, is that it's so relatable. I mean, we're dealing right now, we're in a time, and we will probably always be in a time, where greed is just so prominent, and it's those reminders of when you go for something and go for a goal, not necessarily money, but you go for something, and there's no consideration whatsoever for those around you, this is what happens, these are the consequences, and... and you can then start thinking about as well, is he a hero because he got his goal or is he a monster? Yes, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I do have one question for you that's a little bit more on the sensitive side, um, but I'm really curious about it. And I know Mordecai spoke to this. There was a lot of flack received from the Jewish community about the film and the book being anti-Semitic and promoting stereotypes. Um, and I wanted to ask how you respond to that and how much awareness you can have to this kind of criticism while still making something incredibly personal. Well, Becky, yes, I know we did both. Both Mordecai and I got a lot of flack for that picture from, from all our Jewish friends. Said, and they said to me, how, Ted, how could you do that? How could you do that? Um, my directorial friends from Canada, Canadian director friends, Jewish, I won't mention the person's name, <laughs> <laughs> but he's a well-known, great, great director in Hollywood. He said, he came up to me and said, how could you do that, Ted? Make that film. And, then, and I said, it's, but, but, but it's not, that film's not anti-Semitic. I, I feel for this guy tremendously. That's not anti-Semitism. I said, Why would, don't you feel for him and feel sympathy for him? That, you know, very interesting. I, uh, I worked as a busboy in a very, very, very uh, big restaurant. Uh, famous restaurant, the Old Mill in Toronto. I worked as a busboy, and the um, we used to get, we always had terrible meals beforehand. I don't know where they got the I used to call it, where they got this food from. I used to call it secondhand food. They got it from somewhere else, and it had the same uh, dessert: stale apple and cherry turnovers. But one day, the uh, the dessert uh, chef in the restaurant said to me, "Katjev," I said, "Yes." He says, do me a favor. He says, and I said, what's that, sir? And he said, uh, listen, he said, the Canadians order wine, but they, they're not wine drinkers. And they always leave lots of wine in the bottom of the bottle. Pass me those, get those bottles at the end of the, when they, when they leave and hand them to me and I'll give you some great desserts. So I did. I, I, as soon as I, as soon as I saw somebody, uh, some, a couple leaving, leaving, I'd see that I'd rush over with my tray, put the, Put put the the the, the still the still wine in the bottle on my tray. Cover it with napkins and come back and go back into the into the kitchen. And, and when I passed the dessert chef, I'd, I'd slip him the bottle. And then he gave me these great desserts. 
So one day, I, when they were, the, we all sat down. The, wait, the waiters were all German and French. We all sat down together, and uh, had, we had the usual stale uh, secondhand food. And then, the, and the second, and they they were they were faced with the stale and apple and cherry turnovers. And I had this beautiful dessert. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the Ger- German uh, waiters said to me, "Okay, Kotchev, what Jew tricks did you get up to?" To get that dessert, I said, first of all, I'm not Jewish. Oh, yes, you are. You're Jewish. You're up to some vile Jewish tricks to get the <laughs> And I said, then I thought to myself later in life, I thought, gee, that's what it must be like to, to suffer anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> yes, any sort of bizarre prejudice for no reason and just assumptions about who you are. <laughs> that's... That's, that's the thing that that Duddy that faces. That's why I was always feel I felt for him, you know. To go through all that, and um, but and he wanted to make something of himself because he, otherwise there'd be, no, there'd be he'd have no life meaning to life. Yeah, and and if he weren't so complex a character, because he's incredibly complex, um, yeah. I could see that being a stereotype. But it's it's not at all. He's very much an individual with a full, rich, complex uh, concept that just happens to be doing the things he's doing. Yep. Wake and Fright I recently found because of course it was rediscovered because it was almost lost. It is so good, like crazy good, as I'm sure you know. And uh, Duddy Kravitz got uh, got a full remastering as well, um, and is now being rediscovered by people who are like, "This is great." Are there any other of your films that you hope people will find again? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wake and Fright is one of my. One of my best films, I think. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's it was a real that was a real experience. But we can't go into it now. Making <laughs> <laughs> making that film, and but I'm trying to think of all my films. I mean, I I I'm very proud of all my films, Becky. I think obviously there's special ones like Wake and Fright and Duddy Kravitz, and Joshua Then and Now, and others that are obviously very personal films because of, of course Mordecai Bushley was my best friend, and you know you know that Mordecai wrote a lot of my films. Practically every film that I ever made, Mordecai would do, first, if he didn't do the actual rewriting, he would make great suggestions to me what to do. So um, I'm eternally grateful to Mordecai for, for uh, what he did for my film career. No one had a better ear for dialogue than that man. No, I'll say. Well, then uh, let me ask you if there's uh, another Canadian film that you genuinely love that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Oh, I I like Mon Oncle Antoine. And I like like the one with uh, Micheline Langteau. Thank you so much for your time. I know you have to go. I really appreciate it. Oh, please, Becky. I enjoyed talking to you. Tell all your Canadian listeners how much I love Canada. And I'll, I'll always be a Canadian. I'm always, when people say to me, no matter how long I'm away from Canada, I'm in my heart and soul, I'm a Canadian. We're proud to have you, Ted. Thanks, darling. Big kiss. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.